Well, why don't you join me in the word of prayer and we'll be in Exodus right at the end of chapter 2 and then moving on from there. Our Father, uh, it is a joy to gather together we, how we love the Lord's day. Now, this is the day that we remember the resurrection of Christ and to commemorate his victory over death, our victory over death through him. We gather each week and what a joy it is to open our Bibles and to hear the very mind of Christ, to hear the words of God. May they impact our hearts this evening. May they be nailed deeply into our souls so that we are more and more like Christ, so that we are comforted, so that we are overjoyed, so that we are in awe of your sovereignty and your might and your majesty and your wisdom. Might we see your wisdom in your kingdom plan this night in the book of Exodus, Lord, as we continue to move forward and see your amazing, stunning plan of salvation. We pray these things for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Well, by the time the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, the nation of Israel was still under Roman rule, but still a defined nation. By the time he wrote Romans, Israel was about a decade away, maybe a little bit more, from utter desolation when Rome would destroy Jerusalem They would kill over 1 million Jews, according to the historian Josephus. They would enslave tens of thousands, and they would scatter the rest, and Israel would cease to exist as a nation. The numbers vary among historians, but it's said that up to 70,000 Jewish slaves were taken to Rome, and between 70 AD and 80 AD, uh, what those 60, 70,000 slaves did was build the Roman Colosseum. And so never forget, if you're ever visiting Rome, that was built on the backs of Jewish slaves. In fact, to this day, Orthodox Jews refused to walk under the famous Arch of Titus. Titus was the emperor who destroyed Israel in 70 AD, and it was built to commemorate the destruction of Jerusalem. It is a, it is a monument to that day. But Jesus had predicted the destruction of Jerusalem, even on his way to his own crucifixion, Luke 23 the end of Matthew, he predicts this as well. And so in 70 AD, Israel as a nation ceased to exist. But my earlier reference to the book of Romans, what, what did Paul write in Romans as his hope for Israel, of God's plan for Israel? Listen to the cry of Paul's heart in Romans 9. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to his heart. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He continues in Romans 11, and he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, having access to the whole of God's revelation in our completed Bible, we know the many dark and terrible paths that Israel would tread, but God's faithfulness 
to faithless Israel is really quite a testimony of his grace, of his steadfast love, the chesed love of the Old Testament that is so rich and so necessary. And what we have here in Exodus is the beginning of that steadfast love. This is, this is the wedding, so to speak. This is the marriage of God and Israel, as it were. And so the theme of Exodus, quite simply, is Israel. It's not anything else. Israel is the theme. And while we have clear applications that we can take home from this, we can't get away from that. We can't spiritualize it. We can't say, well, it's really talking about something else. It is about Israel. Because as God treats Israel, so we can expect him to treat the church. And so it's very important for us to understand how he treats Israel. God has devoted an entire book of our Bible to narrate the detailed formation of his chosen nation. And so it it bears our attention. And since the theme of Exodus is Israel, every message in this series, this series of the Pentateuch, series number three, will refer to Israel. Last time we began looking at Israel's birth pangs. In the coming weeks, we'll look at Israel's mighty God, Israel's preeminence, Israel's constitution, Israel's expectations, Israel's willing people, Israel's rules for worship, Israel's forgiveness, and Israel's meeting place with God. But tonight, and I think the the story rightly and under inspiration starts here, we want to look at Israel's mediator. Israel's mediator, the means by which God would communicate his will to his people. Now, there are many characters in this sequence of events we'll look at this evening, but the primary human character is Moses. He is the man called by God to lead his people out of bondage, to form them into God's official nation. And so tonight, we'll consider a a healthy chunk of the book, chapter 2, verses 23, all the way through chapter 7, verse 13. So what we'll do is we're going to examine the text with kind of three different stresses or three different emphases, three different lenses so that you can be immersed in the importance of this text. It's it's very important. So we're going to look at it, first of all, geographically. Secondly, we'll look at it theologically. And third, we'll look at it prophetically. We'll spend most of our time looking at it geographically and just walk through the story. So let's start there. Let's start with the geography, the, the geographic view of these chapters. You remember from last time, the Hebrews are in bondage in Egypt. We saw that God was raising up a savior, a man who would be the instrument of God to rescue Israel, ultimately to be the mediator between God of a covenant to turn them into a nation. And we briefly touched on this last time. This is a transitional section which sets up the situation for Moses to be used of God. The last three verses of chapter 2 Chapter 2, verse 23, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And so we have here two verbs of grief. The people groaned and cried out, and four verbs of God's response, God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. Now in chapter 3, we see the, the actions of God in response to his own knowledge. God's knowledge, by the way, always means action is coming. And so Moses, if you recall, had murdered an Egyptian. He had incurred the wrath of Pharaoh. He had made his own people angry with him. He had run to the wilderness of Midian. He had married and joined into the family of a local shepherd, Retuel or Jethro. 
And so to look at this text geographically, we'll just identify some scenes. So scene one, Mount Sinai. Scene one is at Mount Sinai. Chapter three, verse one. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb and Sinai are the same place. This is the place where God would give his law to his people in, in the years subsequent, and he would establish them as his chosen nation. There isn't exact agreement on the exact location of Sinai, but there is broad agreement on one fact, and that is that from Egypt to Canaan, there you could draw a straight line, and Sinai isn't anywhere on there. Sinai's down here. And so Sinai, wherever it is, is completely out of the way. And so in the coming Exodus, this is not simply a convenient stop. This is a long detour by which God will give his law to his people. And so this is where it all starts. And here we have the famous scene of the burning bush. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So God has now introduced himself to Moses, and you should notice that God is not appearing as a burning bush. He's appearing in a burning bush. He is appearing here, identified as the angel of the Lord. He receives worship. He demands worship because of his presence. That place is holy. He is identical with the Lord, yet he is distinct from the Lord. And without abandoning the other essence of the fullness of deity or diminishing his divine glory, he meets physically with sinners. There's only one being in all the universe that meets that exact description. That is the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. This is the Lord Jesus meeting with Moses. Moses wouldn't know him by that name. We can reasonably call this the moment of Moses' spiritual conversion. God saw that he came to the bush. Moses had a a desire to see the Lord, and his first human response is fear. Now, remember this. Moses murdered an Egyptian 40 years earlier, and there's been no reckoning. There's been no recompense for this. There's been no uh, coming to the Lord to, to speak of this. And while that's not a part of this conversation that we can see, certainly that enters into Moses' mind because he has a, a, a heinous sin that has gone unpunished and undealt with. So we don't know exactly what went on at the bush other than what is said here, but we can be certain of this. God obeyed, or Moses obeyed rather God's command to remove his sandals because of the holiness of the place. Why was it holy? Because it instantly became the temple of God. Because anywhere God is becomes his temple. It is his place of dwelling. And this implies that Moses had a willing heart. Now, why the removal of sandals? Why is that important? Is this a mandate to worship barefooted? I visited a church once as a child and everybody was taking their shoes off. And I didn't know why. I found out this was why. Because when you're in God's house, you take your shoes off. Okay, so that's what they do. But that's not what this is about. 
First of all, this is important. It signified that God desired for Moses to be able to stand in the presence of his holiness. He desired that. And second, it was an act of obedience that, that, that we humbly bow to whatever the Lord requires of us. Uh, he, he could have said, put a hat on. He could have said, sit in this chair. But he said, take your sandals off. And because Moses obeyed God, he was demonstrating genuine faith in the Lord. Now, the imagery of fire here is important. Fire is, is linked to the presence of God all throughout Exodus. It's the presence of God which will guarantee success. We see the pillar of fire to lead Israel in chapter 13. At Mount Sinai, we see the, the mountain immersed in the smoke and the fire of God, it says in chapter 19. In fact, the fire of God is the very last thing mentioned in the book of Exodus. The very last verse, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The fire of God, the holiness of God, right there, the last thing mentioned. Very important in this book. And so now in chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, God promises to deliver his people. He says that he's seen their affliction. He knows their suffering. He'll take them out of Egypt in order to give them a land that is, quote, a good and a broad land, the land of the Canaanites. And God tells Moses, by the way, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to deliver my people from Egypt. And Moses says, whoa, time out here. Hold on just a minute. Verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And in verse 12, God promises, I'll be with you. And just so you know, you're going to end up right back here on this mountain with my people. This same spot. So in case you're thinking about the geography, where God commissioned Moses is the same spot that he would end up with his people. And that was a sign to Moses. And so Moses then asks a reasonable question. Chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, that is Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. In your Bible, if the word the Lord is in all capitals, that is in Hebrew, it is Yahweh. It is an English tradition to put the Lord. I wish that translations would just put Yahweh because that's what it says. So after asking this reasonable question, God gives further instructions. Beginning in verse 16, he tells Moses to gather the elders of Israel Tell them that God has appeared to him and that God is about to deliver them. And then Moses and all the elders of Israel, all the leaders are to go to Pharaoh and to ask to go three days journey into the wilderness in order to sacrifice. But God knows that Pharaoh will be stubborn, so God will do mighty plagues and wonders until Pharaoh lets them go. And just so that Israel won't leave empty-handed, God is going to change the hearts of the Egyptian neighbors. The Egyptian people will suddenly love the Israelites and the Israelites are supposed to go say, can I have all your silver, your gold, your jewelry, and your clothing? And they'll say, yes, take it all. And he says, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. But let's pause for a moment to consider the question that Moses has asked. When Israel asks, who sent me, what shall I say? God answered, I am who I am, has sent you. 
This is not, by the way, this is not the name of God, Yahweh. It's extremely related in Hebrew to the name of God, but it's more of a descriptor of the name of God. It's vague enough that it leaves open many rich possibilities. It it can mean, I am who I am. It can also mean, I am the one who exists. I am the one who is. It can mean, I will be what I will be. It can mean, I am what I am. It can mean, I am whatever I mean to be. It can also have the nuance of, I am here. I really am. It speaks of his utter independence, his total sovereignty. There's a closely parallel verse in Exodus 33, 19. When God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. His name tells a story. It tells who he is. In J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, you remember the tree-like character, Treebeard? In the movies, made it takes 15 minutes for him to say something. He speaks of his name as being rich, and he says this, My name is growing all the time, and I've lived a very long, long time, so my name is like a story. Real names tell you the story of the things they belong to. And that's why when God says, tell them I am who I am has sent you, it it literally has endless depths of meaning. Now, he does speak his name, say this to the people of Israel, verse 15, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has sent me. But this is not the first use of Yahweh in Scripture. Some have theorized that the name of Yahweh was a uh, closely guarded secret among the Jews and and possibly could have been used as proof that Moses was truly sent by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is possible, but in either case, Moses was given something to say by God that would give great confidence to the Israelites that he truly was sent by God. Well, once again, Moses protests. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And so God was going to give Moses more ammo. He was going to give him some clear evidence that he was sent by Yahweh. He gives him evidence in the form of miracles to perform for Israel. Three specific miracles. The first one is found in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, by the way, funniest verse in the whole Old Testament. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. I love that. He's just not quite the savior of Israel yet, is he? So God told Moses to catch the snake and it became a staff again. He gives him a second miracle. He would enable Moses to to make his own hand leprous and clean again by putting it in his cloak. And then finally, he would enable Moses to take a bucket of water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. And as he poured it on the ground, it would become blood. Now, why those three specific miracles? Why the miracles of the snake, leprosy, and the Nile turning to blood? Well, these miracles, those in particular, would strike right at the heart of Egyptian confidence, of Egyptian life, of Egyptian existence. It would give Israel confidence that God is coming against them in might. Snakes. The Egyptian pharaohs wore a crown adorned with a cobra. 
And it was a symbolic threat to all of Israel's enemies. It was also associated with the sun god, Re or Ra, and supposedly united Pharaoh with this most powerful of all of Egypt's gods. Leprosy. History has shown that leprosy was common and extremely feared in Egypt. It was a death sentence. And so the sign of Moses was to show that Yahweh alone could give life or withhold life at will. And the miracle of turning water from the Nile into blood. Every year the Nile River flooded and washed and cleansed and renewed Egypt's soil, making it really just about the richest place on earth to grow crops. And so to the Egyptian, the Nile was life. And so what's God showing Israel? He's showing Israel, I can take down Egypt anytime I feel like it. I can go to the root of their power, the snake, so to speak. I can go to the root of their fears, leprosy. And I can go to the root of their life, the Nile. I can take it all out. And these signs would be performed in chapter 4, verse 30, when Aaron and Moses met with the elders of Israel. And interestingly, it seems that Aaron is the one who performed these signs. Now we have Moses, his famous protest in chapter 4, verse 10, that he's slow of speech in tongue. He says that he's not eloquent, that he hasn't been eloquent in the past or in the present. And so what is this? What does this mean? Well, given that he was educated in the courts of Pharaoh, Moses is not likely saying that he's somehow uncomfortable speaking in public. He's probably literally going to the very courts that he grew up in. And it can't be that he's just rusty in his Egyptian because he says that he's never been eloquent, either in the past or in the present. And so the most likely scenario is that Moses had some sort of speech defect or difficulty, which probably got worse when he was nervous. And so Moses protests again in chapter 4, verse 13, please send someone else. And this is the opposite of what happened in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah 6, The prophet Isaiah famously said, Here I am, Lord, send me. And Moses says, Here I am, Lord, send someone else. How fearful and how headstrong Moses has been. I don't know if you've been keeping track, but he gave five reasons for believing he was the wrong man for the job. Believing that he was not Israel's mediator. Chapter 3, verse 11, he said he was unable. He was unable. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Chapter 3, verse 13, he said he was uninformed. I don't even know who the say sent me. Chapter 4, verse 1, he said he was unbelievable. They will not believe me. Chapter 4, verse 10, he said he's unintelligible. I'm slow of speech. And here in chapter 4, verse 13, he says he's unwilling. Please send someone else. So he's unable, he's uninformed, he's unbelievable, he's unintelligible, he's unwilling. Well, the point was not The ability of Moses. The whole point here is the ability of God. God is just the God is the the power. Moses is just the mediator. And so the Lord is going to use the weakness of a man to proclaim God's strength. And the Lord graciously reminds Moses, chapter four, look at verse eleven. Oh, this is sweet information for us. Chapter four, eleven, then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. The Lord is angry with Moses, verse 14, for his lack of faith, but he will graciously send Moses, send his brother with him, his brother Aaron, to speak on his behalf at certain junctures. 
Moses is to speak to Aaron the words of God, and Aaron will do the actual talking. Now, God's promise to Moses, by the way, we never see this. He never promises to make Moses sufficient, although he would do that. He promises that his own presence will be sufficient. Not that Moses will become more powerful, but that the power of God will be present for him. This is exactly the promise that the Lord Jesus gave to Paul when Paul begged for relief from a trial. You remember this in 2 Corinthians twelve nine, Paul says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so the power of Christ may rest upon me. Well, all of this has happened at Mount Sinai, at the mountain of God. Now we come to scene two, the journey to Egypt. The journey to Egypt. In chapter 4, 18 through 20, Moses returns home to his father-in-law's family. He respectfully requests the patriarch's permission to go back to Egypt to his own people. And so Moses took his wife and his sons, the staff of God in his hand, and he headed back to Egypt. And on the way, God informs Moses that he'll appear before Pharaoh, but God will harden Pharaoh's heart against him. And these exchanges will culminate in one final grand confrontation. Chapter 4, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so God looks ahead with Moses to the end of the ten plagues that are coming to say it's going to come down to something big. Now, still on the way, after having commissioned Moses on the way to Egypt, we have this odd and tense situation which develops suddenly one of the most unique things in all of the Old Testament. Chapter 4, verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, that's his wife, Moses' wife, Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So we let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. That's one of those passages that when you're reading your Bible, you go, I'll have to figure that one out next time. And you just never do. It's just, it's an odd little thing. It's ambiguous. It's an incredibly debated passage. There have been whole scholarly articles written on just these three verses here. Here's the basic traditional interpretation. And it won't make a difference in your salvation one way or another. But let's just dig into this for a minute. Here's the traditional interpretation. Moses had two sons, but he had not yet circumcised one or both of them. And on the journey to Egypt, Moses was suddenly taken ill as punishment from the Lord for neglecting this sign that he was part of the Abrahamic covenant. Moses told Zipporah what the problem was, and so she circumcised the boy, averting the wrath of God against Moses. But this made her mad to have to do this. It angered her in this whole process. And so for putting her through this ordeal, she blamed Moses. She threw the boy's cut foreskin at Moses' feet and called him a name. You bloody bridegroom. Literally in Hebrew, you murderous bridegroom, you bridegroom of blood. Well, this is one of those moments where if we're going to understand this, we need to dig into a little detail. It's probably be the first and last time you hear this in your lifetime, so stay with me. The problem is, is that most of that traditional interpretation is not based on the text itself, but based on assumptions, based on presuppositions. 
In the Hebrew text, Moses is never mentioned in those three verses. The text doesn't say that God tried to kill Moses. The Lord met him. Now, usually when you have a pronoun like that, you look for an antecedent, a proper name that comes directly before it. Do you see where it is? It's not there. There isn't one. And so in the absence of an antecedent, you look for what's called a prolepsis. You look ahead to the next proper name. The pronoun him now points forward to the one who will be named. In this case, it is Moses' son. He's the one that God has come against. The common English translation of verse 25 that she touched Moses' feet with it is based on the assumption that him in verse 24 is Moses. But in verse 25, you probably have a note in your Bible. In Hebrew, it just says he touched his feet with it. Moses is never named in those three verses. There are only three people named in this little account. God, Zipporah, and the boy. And so the boy has become ill. Genesis 17:14 said that the uncircumcised male shall not be part of God's chosen people. It never says that the father should be punished. It's the uncircumcised male who should be punished. So he's probably not a little boy. He may be a little older. Now, if Moses isn't directly part of the story, then what do we make of Zipporah's statement, you are a bridegroom of blood to me? How do we understand that? There's been some recent really good solid scholarship that makes a strong case that this is actually, all of this is a positive interaction, not a negative one. This is likely a case of a word sounding the same as a different word. The Hebrew word for bridegroom is identical to the Arabic word for circumcise. And Zipporah was a Midianite. She was Arabic. And so this is an Arabic word. But even if if she meant bridegroom in Hebrew, there's a problem here because a married woman never referred to her husband as a bridegroom. That's what you referred to. You referred to him as that at your wedding, but not afterwards. But the same word also means, depending on the context, son-in-law. But what is a son-in-law? A son-in-law is somebody who's been joined to the family by means of a covenant, right? And so it also can mean joining in a covenant family relationship. So a better way to see this is that she is performing the ritual of circumcision to avert the wrath of God against her son. She ritually touches her son's feet, probably a euphemism for his genitals, and says, you are circumcised in blood to me. That's a better translation, meaning you are part of God's covenant people now. This is a positive thing. By the way, look at the larger context. God has just promised that he will do what to those who were unfaithful and refused to follow Yahweh? Verse 23, I will kill your firstborn son. And so God is separating his people out for himself. And there are some lessons here. It's not the, the word of God never sets things in, in its context for no reason. Three lessons. First lesson, the expectation of covenant faithfulness. The expectation of covenant faithfulness. Moses isn't mentioned in this section, but clearly Moses was to have his own house in order before leading Israel. And this probably speaks less to the failure of Moses and more to the faithfulness of Zipporah, a Midianite who's now following her husband and following her husband's God. There's a second lesson. The shedding of blood averts God's wrath. The shedding of blood averts God's wrath. Circumcision, in this case, is a picture of that shed blood. We have a a microcosm picture of the necessity of sacrifice in order to be included in God's covenant people. 
And then we have a third lesson, a reminder that illness is an opportunity to examine your life. Illness is an opportunity to examine your life. You know, it's interesting. The Bible very carefully avoids ever saying that every illness is an oppression from God, and it carefully avoids saying that no illness is an oppression from God. Alec Mottier writes, quote, We must face every illness and ailment with the upward look and face the question, Lord, what is in this as between you and me? So we have good lessons in those three little verses here. Moses needed to get his house in order. Now, God sends Aaron, his, his brother, from Egypt to meet Moses on his way. Then they meet with the elders of Israel. The, the three promised miracles are performed. And look at the very end of chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 31. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is spiritual gold. They're on their way. They're on the right track. But now that brings us to the third scene, and that is Egypt. Now we finally come to Egypt. Moses and Aaron meet with Pharaoh, and it does not go well. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose upon them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men so that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the the consequences of that first meeting, it's just disaster. It's absolute disaster. The Israelites had to get their own straw to make bricks and now they were were being beaten. They were being abused for not making their daily quotas. And the the foremen, the workmen of Israel met Moses and Aaron. Look at chapter 5, verse 21. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his pharaohs, his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And so this isn't going well. Now, from a heavenly standpoint, this is all as God has planned. This is the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh per God's plan. But from a human standpoint, Moses messed up. He was not obedient. He was not precise. Pharaoh was arrogant. His phrase in chapter 5, verse 2, I do not know the Lord, means I do not acknowledge his authority. But Moses messed up. He didn't do exactly what was instructed to do in the first meeting. Listen to God's command. 
All the way back in chapter 3, verse 18. I'll just read it to you. And they shall listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. That is not what Moses did. He did not follow these instructions. First of all, he took the wrong people. God commanded him to take the elders of Israel, but he only took Aaron. Second, he used the wrong strategy. Chapter 5, verse 1 bears very little resemblance to chapter 3, verse 18. He, he made up things. He, he improvised. The third thing he did wrong, he overstepped his request. He overstepped. In chapter 3, verse 18, God said to ask for a three days journey to sacrifice. But Moses started with an ultimatum for national release. Let my people go. And we often lift that up as a wonderful phrase, but the fact is is that Moses was not saying what God told him to say, not initially. There's a fourth thing he did wrong. He tried to appear strong. He tried to, he tried to sort of puff up a little bit. He called the Hebrews Israel as if they were a strong, sovereign nation to threaten Egypt. But God said to say, the God of the Hebrews. That's a way of saying the God that my family serves. It was humble. There's a fifth thing that God did, and this is the worst one of all. He put words in God's mouth. He put words in God's mouth. Moses tried to back up. Chapter 5, verse 3, he tried to more accurately say what God had said, but even then he put words in the Lord's mouth. Verse 3, then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Had the Lord threatened to kill Israel if they didn't obey? No. So Moses just puffed himself up. The Lord commanded a team approach, all the elders working in an understandable and humble terminology to make a modest and a limited request with respect and courtesy. And instead, Moses walked in and said, Hey, listen, look at me. And he went in arrogantly. And in typical fashion for us humans, Moses blamed God when Moses overstepped. Chapter 5, verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Very typical that when we fail to obey the Lord, we wonder why his blessing doesn't come. But now, chapter 6 is a key transformative moment. This is when things really begin to turn around. Chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. You know what God is saying? He's saying, by the time this is all done, Pharaoh's going to be saying, Get out! Like, the sooner the better. That's what he's predicting is going to happen. That's exactly what will happen. Verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I'll come back to that in a moment. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. 
Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. This is the moment we get our eyes off the failure of a man and onto the success of God. God isn't going to save Israel through Moses. He's going to save Israel despite Moses, if we could put it that way. Chapter 6, verses 2 through 8. I don't know if you caught this, but God gives Moses confidence based on who he is in the past, in the present, and in the future. Chapters 2, 3, and 4, God in the past. I am Yahweh. I am the one who appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Verse 5, God in the present. I hear the groaning of my people now. In chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, God in the future. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by the way, ultimately for me, reason number 4,233,904, that I believe in a future Israel, because ultimately if Israel has no future as a nation, the exodus was pointless, that there wasn't a reason for it. So the Lord has bolstered the faith of Moses and Aaron, but the people, the people are still lagging behind. Verse 9 says, because of their broken spirits, they won't believe. And so in verses 10 through 13, God assures Moses and Aaron that they will bring Israel out of Egypt. And then we get to this seemingly oddly placed genealogy in chapter 6, verse 14. It seems to be here, it's a genealogy of Moses and Aaron, and it really seems to be here just to remind and assure the reader that Moses and Aaron truly are God's chosen servants for this hour of need. In fact, verses 26 and 27 confirms that purpose. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel by the land, from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. It's to give the people confidence that these were the right leaders. And the end of the chapter sees Moses once again needing the Lord's encouragement. He says, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And now in chapter 7, the battle of the wills begins in earnest. Moses and Aaron meet with Pharaoh. And now it really gets going. Aaron casts his staff down, which becomes a snake. But Pharaoh's magicians do the very same thing by the power of Satan. But in a fun little victory, Aaron's snake eats the the Egyptian snakes. I love that. And so the challenge was clear. Pharaoh was digging in. Pharaoh was saying, I will fight your God. He was going in for the fight. And that fight commences in our next message. Well, that's the text geographically. We started in Sinai and we went on a journey and came to Egypt. Now, I just want to point out some highlights theologically. and We won't take as much time on this. I just want to give you some theological highlights here. First, what we might call the theology of initiative. The theology of initiative. Who's making everything happen? God came to Moses in the burning bush. God commanded Moses to obey and take his sandals off. God told Moses he was his chosen servant despite five protests. God chose the miracles he would perform. God chose to harden Pharaoh's heart. God chose this moment to begin to rescue Israel. God predicted that Israel would be rescued all while plundering the Egyptians. 
there is zero human initiative here. And anyone who wants to believe that your salvation from sin began with human initiative ought to read this story. There isn't any initiative on the human side. All we have is protests and, and heel dragging. Salvation is always God's divine initiative. There's a second theological highlight we could point to, and that is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Our text begins with God appearing in the midst of fire and Moses being told, this is holy ground. Now, the idea of holiness or holy in Hebrew speaks of separateness and distinctness. The Apostle Paul illustrated this in 1 Timothy 6.16, that God alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light. The, the separateness of God says that he belongs in his own unique category. He's in his own sphere. You can't even compare him to other categories. There's no way to make a comparison since all the other categories were created by him. So you can't make a comparison. And what do we have here that embodies holiness? Well, we have the imagery of fire, beginning with the burning bush. Let's go through some qualities of fire because this will help us with holiness. First, fire is unapproachable. It's unapproachable. Genesis 3, 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God is unapproachable because he's holy. Exodus 33, 20, you cannot see my face for man cannot see me, shall not see me and live. The fire is unapproachable. Fire is lethal. It's lethal. Judges 6, 22 and 23, Gideon perceived that he, this is a man visiting him, was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Gideon had been confronted by the presence of God and he immediately rightly assumed he was about to die. Only fire can dwell in fire. Only fire can dwell in fire. The holiness of God is an active force which welcomes all which will conform to it. Psalm 24, 3 and 4 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. In other words, that which has been purified by the fire then can be part of the fire. Fire destroys all that offends. Fire destroys all that offends it. First Samuel 6, God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? You offend holiness, you die. And finally, fire requires protection. Fire requires protection. The unassisted man cannot approach God or dwell with holy God. Daniel chapter 3 records the three faithful Jews thrown into the fiery furnace, but they lived. Why? Because God was standing among them. And they were together. The holiness of God permeates Exodus. There's a third theological highlight we could look at. The immutability of God. The unchanging nature of God. Would you go back with me to chapter 6? Look at verses 2 and 3. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. 
I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. The translation, by my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. This is a, tra- a traditional translation which is viable and it, it, is, it is worthy. But there's excellent evidence that this ought to be translated a little bit more precisely. My name is Yahweh. Did I not make myself known to them? This is a much better option for several reasons. First of all, in Hebrew, the traditional translation would be an almost unheard of grammatical construction. It would be really weird. It would be like in Hebrew, Yoda speaking. It would be odd. Another reason, the Hebrew phrase translated by my name, Yahweh, doesn't primarily mean by my name. More precisely, it means and my name. And if the purpose was to say, I didn't reveal my name to them, there's a much easier way of saying that in Hebrew. This is like the the real odd way to say it. But even just beyond this text, we don't have to take evidence just from here. We know that Adam's wife Eve referred to God as Yahweh. Genesis 4 verse 1. Genesis 4 26. People began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Noah said in chapter 9 verse 26 of Genesis, Blessed be Yahweh. Genesis 12, 8, Abraham, quote, called upon the name of Yahweh. Chapter 13, verse 6, Abraham called upon the name of Yahweh. Genesis 15, 2, Abram prayed, O Lord God. In this, in this case, Yahweh is translated as God. So the point here is not, I never revealed my name before. The point is, I'm the same God who has always been the same God, who has always been the same God, who has always been the same God. My name is Yahweh. Did I not make myself known to them? He's unchangeable. He's immutable. Here's another theological point. The sovereignty of God encompasses the responsibility of man. The sovereignty of God encompasses the responsibility of man. Exodus 7, verse 3, God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 8, verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Bible makes no apology or explanation for the interaction between God's total sovereignty and man's responsibility. God will save sinners and get all the credit And some sinners will deny God and get all the blame, and rightly so. Let me give you a fifth point, and this is more just to point you toward your own study. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 22, reads like a systematic theology of God. And I'm just going to pop through this really quickly. Chapter 3, 14 and 15, the self-revelation of God. That God is only known because he chooses to be known. No one finds God. Don't tell somebody, look for God. You won't find him. You only find God because God wanted to be found. Chapter 3, verse 16, again, the changelessness of God, the immutability of God. He always cares for, he never forgets his people. He's always the God of Abraham, always the God of Isaac, always the God of Jacob. That never changes Chapter 3, verse 17, the integrity of God. I promise that I will bring you up out of affliction. He's keeping the promise made to Abraham over 400 years earlier, back in Genesis 15, 7, Genesis 15, 13 through 16. So you have the self-revelation of God, the changelessness of God, the integrity of God. Chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, the foreknowledge of God. He fully knew that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened. Why? Because he was going to do it. That's how he knew. 
God's foreknowledge is never passive. It's always active. Chapter 3, verse 20. The all-powerful God. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. He'll strike down the most powerful nation on earth, and he says so before he does it. He's like Babe Ruth pointing at the fence saying, I'm about to hit a home run. Chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. He is the heart-directing God. The heart-directing God. God will direct the Egyptians to want to give all their wealth to Israel. If somebody knocks on your door and you have the sudden irresistible urge to turn your IRA over to that person, you're probably an Egyptian. That's what happened. They were knocking on doors saying, hey, could I have everything you own? Yes, that sounds great. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Well, we've looked geographically and theologically. Let's just look at this text prophetically. Frankly, I I would have rather just started here, but I had to tell you the story. Moses, so very clearly, and unless you're almost blind, he points us to Christ. And the New Testament is abundantly clear on this. So I want to show you two kind of broad categories here. First of all, we can see that Moses prefigures the Lord Jesus Christ in multiple ways. And I'm going to pop through these fairly quickly. Both are faithful mediators. The one who stands between God and man. Hebrews 3, 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest, that's a, that's a mediator of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So both are faithful mediators. Jesus would be a prophet like Moses. He would be a prophet like Moses, receiving and giving the word of God to God's people. Deuteronomy 18.15 says directly that God would raise up a prophet like Moses. Peter affirmed in the sermon in Acts 3 that Jesus is this prophet like Moses. Stephen affirmed while addressing the Sanhedrin, applied this prophecy to Jesus as well. Jesus would be a lawgiver like Moses. John 13, John 15 directly state that Jesus is giving new commands Galatians 6 verse 2 says that we live under the law of Christ. Fourth, Jesus mediated a covenant between God and men like Moses did. They both mediated a covenant. Moses mediated the Israelite covenant or or sometimes called the Mosaic covenant or the old covenant. Jesus mediated the new covenant. Little side note here. Fifth, as babies... Both narrowly escaped a king determined to murder the mediator. Both of them narrowly escaped. Another way they're they're similar. Both Moses and Jesus had a connection to Egypt. Jesus was taken to Egypt to escape Herod's murderous intentions. Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to go a little faster through these. There's a bunch. Moses was the adopted son of a king and Jesus is the son of the Most High. Or put it this way, there's an opposite way you could say this. Moses was the natural son of a humble man and became the son of a king. Jesus was the natural son of a king and became the adopted son of a humble man on earth. God gave Moses the words to speak. Chapter 4, verses 10 through 17. God gave Jesus the words to speak. John 8, 28. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd. Jesus calls himself the good, what? Shepherd. Peter calls Jesus the chief shepherd. Both proclaimed liberty. 
Moses told Pharaoh, let my people go. Jesus said of himself in prophetic fulfillment in Luke 4 that he came, quote, to proclaim liberty, to set at liberty those who were oppressed. Both performed miracles to authenticate the word of God. As a matter of fact, after the feeding of the 5,000, John six fourteen says that many were convinced that Jesus must be this prophet in the line of Moses because of the similarity to what? To the manna in the wilderness. Both held intimate conversations with God. Exodus thirty-three, eleven. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Jesus, of course, had a unique and special relationship with his father. He said in John ten fifteen, The Father knows me, and I know the Father. Both of them literally glowed with the glory of God. When Moses was in God's presence, Exodus 34 says that his face shone with heavenly glory and had to be covered with a veil. And of course, that makes us think of the transfiguration of Christ in Matthew 17 when his face shone like the sun. Both of them interceded for their people. Moses petitioned God on behalf of his people and pleaded for their forgiveness. After the golden calf incident in Exodus 32, he pleaded for Israel twice. He interceded for them at other times as well, particularly in the book of Numbers. And of course, John 17 records this great intercessory prayer of our mediator, Jesus, for his people. And both were willing to die and suffer God's wrath for their people. Did you know that? Moses said after the golden calf in Exodus 32, verse 32, praying to God, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not... Please blot me out of your book that you have written. In other words, I would trade my salvation for Israel. Did you notice that the Apostle Paul said the same thing when I read from Romans 9? Listen, when Jesus came, he should have been instantly recognizable. They should have said, this guy's just like Moses in every way. But we can't just leave it there because while Moses does prefigure Jesus, Jesus is infinitely superior. He's infinitely superior. Moses had some glory. God in Christ has all glory. Hebrews 3 verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Moses had some glory. Jesus has all glory. Moses was only a man. Jesus is God. Hebrews 3 verse 4, for every house is built by someone But the builder of all things is God. In the previous verse, Moses is called the house and Jesus is called the builder of the house. That's a a direct claim for deity. Moses was a servant of God, but Jesus is the son of God. Hebrews 3, 5 and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses would mediate a good covenant. Jesus mediates a better covenant. Hebrews 8, verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. And this is in the context of comparing them to Moses. Moses interceded for temporary forgiveness. Jesus intercedes for permanent, everlasting forgiveness Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus always lives to make intercession. Now, how would we say that? We would say he's interceding for you 24-7. And the ultimate way that Jesus is better 
Moses was willing to die and suffer God's wrath for his people. Jesus did die and suffer God's wrath for his people. He did it. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Both Moses and Jesus were present at the burning bush, but one bowed down to the other. Can you indulge me one last comparison? Go back to chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, and then we'll be done. Chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. This is going to blow your mind. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. These verses are filled with hope and confidence. God gives seven I will statements. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land and I will give it to you for a possession. And these I will statements, they're, they're bookended. They're protected. They're, they have sentinels. They have guardians on either side of them. It is God's signature. At the beginning of verse 6, I am Yahweh. Then you get the seven I wills. And at the end of verse 8, I am Yahweh. God has signed his name at the beginning and at the end of these promises. And you know what these seven I will statements are promising? Statements 1, 2, and 3 is promising redemption. Statements 4 and 5 is promising adoption. And statements 6 and 7 is promising a home. Redemption, adoption, home. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Redemption. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There is adoption. And then the next three verses. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's home. Redemption, adoption, home. That's Israel's story. And that's your story. God's plan of salvation is always consistent. And it is because of the ultimate mediator that Moses first met in the burning bush. Jesus, our Savior. One hour. You guys are awesome. Let's pray. Our Father, what a, what a magnificent text. What a glorious testimony of your saving kindness and grace that you alone took the initiative to save your people. And in the same way you alone took the initiative to save us, it was by the Holy Spirit's power alone that we were able to recognize Christ. It was by the 
the mercy of the Holy Spirit alone that we could repent and we could exercise saving faith. And you promised us redemption. You have effected our adoption and we look forward to home. Lord, I praise you for this text which points us so clearly to Christ in the person of Moses, a a shadowy figure to be sure, but he makes the Lord Jesus absolutely recognizable as our Savior. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.